are so abundantly thankful for that truth that he came from heaven to enter into this world and take upon himself the form of a man and he was obedient unto his father even to the point of death looking ahead for the the glory that he knew he would have with you and and knowing that because he was obedient to go to the cross for our sake that we would one day be able to fellowship with him throughout all of eternity Father, I would pray that you would go ahead of us, that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher this morning as we look at sort of just a history lesson. We're not even really going to be in the scripture, but we know these things are all basic and, and important for us to understand as we approach the actual public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I would just pray that, again, your spirit would have his will and way in every heart here. Prepare us, Lord, um, for the Christmas season ahead that we might be the light and salt we need to be as we share the good news of Christ with all those in our circle of influence. Now, I just pray, Lord, that you'd help me to speak clearly and quickly and accomplish your purposes. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in your books, we are actually on lesson number 10, but as I looked at the lesson and listened to the tape from the last time I taught this study, and it took me 90 minutes to teach it, I figured if I kept you here today for 90 minutes, I would probably lose everybody because you'd be thinking of all that good food over there in the fellowship hall. So I have divided lesson 10 into two parts. This morning, even though the title for the lesson is Fearless Voice Confronts Fruitless Vipers, We won't actually even be talking about that because the fearless voice there is John the Baptist. That will be part two of our outline. When we come back January 6th, make sure you mark that on your calendar, January 6th. Tell all the ladies that aren't here. We will come back and we will look at John's sermon. But for this morning's lesson, we're going to look at just part one of this lesson outline, and it is about the various Jewish sects. Now, I'm not going to be speaking about sex this morning, (laughs) S-E-X. That would wake you up, wouldn't it? (laughs) But we're going to be talking about Jewish sex. And it's very hard to say and get it across, you know, what I'm talking about without spelling it for you, S-E-C-T-S. I thought before we got any deeper into our Life of Christ study, we needed to really have a clearer understanding of the three major divisions of first century Jewish leadership and of the various sects which arose under each one of those three divisions. Under the political division, we're going to be looking at a study of the Herodians and the Zealots. We're going to see what they, what they believed and what they stood for, etc. Under the religious division, we're going to take a look at the sects of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Scribes, and the Essenes. And then in our consideration of the judicial division, we're only going to discuss one you can't really call it a sect, but it's a body of 70 men. It was uh, 70 men plus the high priest, which formed the special council, the judicial council of Israel, which was known as the Sanhedrin. Now, in the past, if you listen to any of my previous tapes, whenever I have mentioned the Sanhedrin, I pronounced it Sanhedrin. But this week, when we were driving down to Georgia to spend the Thanksgiving holidays with our family. I was listening to some tapes by Dr. Mark Minnick. Has anybody heard of Dr. Mark Minnick? He has a very large, yes, you would. Did you go to his church in Greenville? Okay, he has a very large church in Greenville, South Carolina. He um, teaches part-time at Bob Jones and has this large church. My daughters wanted to go to it several times, but they couldn't even find a parking place in the parking lot. And apparently the services go on for something like two hours, which 
I would love that. It would be wonderful. But he is probably the best Bible teacher I have ever heard. And I've heard some really good Bible teachers, but right now he's at the top of my list. Anyway, he pronounced this word as Sanhedrin. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, if he's pronouncing it Sanhedrin, I better correct myself and not say Sanhedrin anymore, even though I've heard other Bible teachers pronounce it Sanhedrin. So I'm going to try to say Sanhedrin from now on. All right, let's look, first of all, we won't really be using our Bibles too much. Maybe you want to look up a passage now and then as I mention that. But um, the Herodians are the first political group that we will look at, and they are only mentioned twice in in the four gospel accounts. And those two occasions are found in Mark 12:13 and Matthew 22:16, and those are parallel passages, meaning that they both speak about the same incident. They both describe the same event. Some Pharisees, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a tickle in my throat. Some Pharisees had linked up with some Herodians in a joint effort to ensnare Jesus. And their question essentially was, you know, should we pay tax to Caesar? And they were trying to trap him and have him answer the questions wrong so that he would get in trouble with the people. Well, that's where he had this profound answer, you know, render unto Caesar those things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Well, those two passages are the only occasion, and they're parallel passages, so really we could say the Herodians are only mentioned once in the Scripture. It's the only time that they're mentioned. They were not a religious group. That's why I have them under the political division here. They were basically a political party of Jews. Okay, remember, all of these groups we're talking about are Jewish people. So this was a political party of Jews who supported the dynasty and the reign of the Herods, you know, Herod the Great and all of Herod's sons. They were secularists who would have paganized Judaism if they had had their way. They came into prominence at the time of the Maccabees. Have you heard of the Maccabees? That's, they arose during the intertestamental period, the, the period of time between Malachi and Matthew, somewhere around 2nd century B.C. And they, um, the Herodians disappeared from the world scene right after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian, the Roman um, general, came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried, killed many people and, of course, carried many off as slaves. That's when most of these Jewish sects were deleted. They were no more. Now, the Herodians denied the existence of spirits. As well, in other words, they denied that there were any angels or um, any fallen angels known as demons. They also denied the resurrection of the dead and the immortality of the human soul. So I said they were secularists. They actually believed that when a person died, he died. That was it. There was no afterlife. Christ showed no support. He showed no sympathy whatsoever to the cause of the Herodians which was, their cause was to befriend, as I said, not only the Herodians, the the Herods, Herod and all of his ruling sons, but also to support the Romans. This was their, their main cause. The Jewish Herodians wanted to support the Romans and the Herods. And, and the reason they wanted to support them was so that they would be benefited by that. They figured if, if they brown-nosed, if they compromised with their oppressors, 
then they might be entrusted with some degree of power and reward. But Jesus did not show any sympathy or any support of this cause. He even warned the common people about following the teachings of the Herodians. And this is essentially what he said in Mark 8:15, where he said, Take heed, beware of the leaven. What does leaven in the Bible symbolically speak of? Sin. All right, so he's saying beware of the sin of the Pharisees and of the Herods. And so the leaven of the Herods. So if you're to beware of the leaven of Herod, you're also to beware of the, the sin of the Herodians, those who supported the Herods. And so this is why the Herodians readily joined themselves, allied themselves with the Pharisees who were normally not their friends. The Pharisees and the Herodians actually stood for opposite things. The Pharisees would have nothing to do with the Herods or the Romans, whereas the the Herods did. I mean, they supported, the Herodians did support these groups. But because of their common dislike of Jesus Christ, the two groups came together so uh, to plot to discredit Jesus. And that's what we see the one time when we do see the Herodians mentioned in the scripture. Okay, let's look at the Zealots now. Second group, political group, the Zealots. They were a radical party of Jews who were determined to throw off the yoke of Rome by force. Not politically. I mean, they they were going to do it forcefully. They figured that was the only way to get rid of the Romans was to do it by force. As with the Herodians, the Zealots also arose during the intertestamental period, um, and they rose to power under a man named Judas Maccabee. Judas Maccabee was the leader of the Maccabean Revolt. Now, if you remember your history... You remember that following the Medo-Persian Empire arose the Greek Empire. And um, in 165, around 165 BC, a man, the Greek leader, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, a very wicked man, a man who is actually a picture in type of the Antichrist. He was an Antichrist. He um, came, marched into Jerusalem, went right to the temple, and profaned it. He desecrated it. It was an abomination of desolation, such as the Antichrist will perform in the last days in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of what that final Antichrist will do. When Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, he marched right into the Holy of Holies, and they, they, um, they put a statue of Zeus in there, which, of course, you know infuriated the Jewish people. And then he slaughtered pig meat, which is another abomination to Jews who will not eat pork or ham or anything coming from a swine or a pig. They slaughtered pigs on the altar, and then they took their insides and and smeared them everywhere. You know, Desik took the blood of the pigs and just smeared it all over the temple and, and profaned the temple in a terrible way. And they also forced the priests to eat pig meat. You know, they forced the pig meat down the throats of the priests. And so the Maccabean revolt, led by this man, Judas Maccabee, Maccabee and his brothers, um, was a revolt against this, against Antiochus Epiphanes and against the Greeks. It was Israel's reaction to all of this. And um, 
the, and this is the rise of the zealots. Judas Maccabee and his brothers and his followers were the first zealots. The word zealot actually comes from the word, what word do you think? What word do you see there? Zeal, Z-E-A-L. It comes from the word zeal. And if there was one thing that the Jewish Maccabees had, it was definitely zeal. They had a zeal. Most of their zeal originally, most of the zealots' zeal was for their faith originally. They were upset and they were angry because of what Antiochus Epiphanes did to their faith, to their temple. But as time progressed, that zeal became more political than it was spiritual. And that's what we find at the time of Jesus Christ. The zealots of first century Israel were guerrilla-type um, fighters. They were essentially like terrorists who would make surprise attacks on Roman garrisons and patrols. And it really was not a rare thing for a zealot to slip on, up on a lone Roman soldier. That's why it was dangerous for the Roman soldiers to ever travel at night or alone, I should say, even in the daytime, alone in Jerusalem because a zealot might slip up on him and with his dagger, they carried these small daggers, slit his throat and then disappear into the, the night shadows and run back to the nearby hills outside of Jerusalem until it was time for him to, to sneak back in to Jerusalem and attack once again. So as I said, their, their tactic was really terrorism. Now, the famous Jewish historian Josephus, Flavius Josephus, who we quote from quite a bit, he referred to the zealots as dagger men because they were known for carrying with them at all times these little sharp daggers, and they frequently, of course, assassinated the Roman soldiers. They were generally liked by the, the Jewish common people. The Herodians were not popular with the Jewish people. The Jewish people did not like Herod, did they? nor did they like any of his sons who were ruling over their country. So they did not like the Herodians. But the Zealots, they, they essentially liked the Zealots quite a bit because they also wanted to um, end their Roman oppression. But, of course, most of the common people were not quite as zealous as the Zealots in that they would not go out and slit somebody's throat. That really is not very Christian, very biblical. So they weren't willing to go that far themselves, but they, they were kind of behind their cause, and they did like them. One of the Lord's original 12, possibly two of the Lord's original 12 apostles were zealots. We know that definitely one of his apostles was a zealot, and his name gives it away. His name was Simon the Zealot. You can read about Simon the Zealot in Luke 6.15 and also in Acts 1.13. Simon Zelotis, it is in Greek, which means Simon the Zealot. So he was definitely, before he came to Christ, he was a murderer, apparently, because he was one of these dagger men. It's also very possible that Judas Iscariot may have been a zealot. A lot of people think that as anxious as he was for Roman, the Roman yoke to be broken, that perhaps he also was a zealot, although his, zealot, his real zeal was for something else. His real zeal was for money, absolutely. Now, how many of you have ever heard of a man named Barabbas? I know you have. Barabbas was uh, caught and sentenced to die by the Romans for his murders. Barabbas was a zealot. He was a zealot who had killed Romans, and the Romans finally caught up with him. 
Now, you remember when Pontius Pilate gave the Jewish people a choice because every year at the Passover, it was the tradition that he would free one of the Jewish prisoners. So he thought, well, this was his out because he really didn't want to crucify an innocent man. He did not want to crucify Jesus. So he went to the people and he said, I will, I'll give you a choice. You can free Jesus or you can free another prisoner. And what did the people shout? Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And so he let Barabbas go and, and uh, he had to have Jesus crucified. Um, now, the reason was because, of course, the people liked Barabbas because of the fact that he was a zealot who killed Romans, whereas Jesus had already made it very clear to them after three and a half years of public ministry, he had made it clear that he was not going to use his supernatural powers to lead a military revolution against Rome. And therefore, the people instigated by the religious rulers chose Barabbas and Jesus was put to death. Okay, now the last holdout of Jewish zealots following the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans under Titus Vespasian in 70 AD, a number of the Jewish zealots escaped to a place which was supposedly an impregnable fortress. And what was the name of that fortress, everybody? Masada. And it's near the Dead Sea. I have been there. It is an amazing place. It's a very, very high plateau way up in the middle of the desert. You know, in the desert, the um, Dead Sea is the lowest place on the face of the earth. It's even below sea level. It's extremely hot. It's, um, I guess it's beautiful in its own way. Every kind of topography has its own beauty. But this fortress was made by Herod. I think it was Herod the Great who actually had it built. But nobody was living there at the time, so the zealots went there. They thought this was their perfect escape. And they actually succeeded in living there um, for seven months while the Romans were down, way down below, and couldn't get to them. They could have actually lived there indefinitely because it, they had a natural fed um, water supply. And um, the place up there is big enough. If you walk around, you can see all the ruins. You can see where they had their storage for grain and everything. And they could, you can see where they had their fields. They actually could keep on growing food. And they had animals and chickens and all that. Sort of, so they could have left, lived up there indefinitely. But the Romans had this brilliant idea to build like a ramp up to, up to the fortress, you know, way up here. And it took them, well, I guess it took them something like seven months to build that ramp because they had to keep pushing dirt and rocks and everything to build the ramp. So finally the ramp went right up to the fort and they brought their battering rams, you know, on their wheels, pushed them up this ramp and barged in. And when they got inside the fort, what did they find? Everybody was dead. They had committed mass suicide the day before, knowing that the Romans were almost going to be successful. And uh, it's a very, very, I remember weeping up there as I was reading one of the suicide notes that was left by somebody. There was only a few women and a few children who did not participate. And, of course, they're the ones who shared with everybody what happened the last couple of days. But that just gives you a mindset, you know, the, uh, the idea of the mindset of the zealots. They were not going to subject themselves to being under Roman oppression, even at the point of death. They would rather die than be taken by the Romans and made slaves or killed. So that's the zealots. Now let's move to the religious division of Jewish leadership. 
And under this section, we'll discuss the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Essenes, beginning with the Sadducees. Now, it really wasn't completely accurate for me to put the um, Sadducees under the religious division here. But on the other hand, it wouldn't be completely accurate for me to put them under the political group either because they really fell somewhere in between. The Sadducees were what we could call a priestly political party. They were sort of in between being political and religious. religious. The Sadducees derived their name from a priest named Zadok who lived during the reign of both King David and King Solomon. Now, the law of Moses, which is what we call the Pentateuch, the Jews call it the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, was the only part of the scripture which the Sadducees accepted as being divinely inspired and authoritative. So they disregarded the rest of the Old Testament. They only looked to the first five books of Moses as their authority. They denied, and this is a good point, really, they denied the legalistic traditions of the Pharisees because the Pharisees had really taken legalism to its ultimate. And so that was good that they denied the legalism of the Pharisees. But all in all, they really didn't care a whole lot for religion, um, especially for doctrine. You know, doctrine is teaching from the Bible, such as the virgin birth, that's part of our doctrine, or the deity of Jesus Christ, that's doctrine. They didn't really care about doctrine. That religion to them was sort of a game, so that was a bad point. They um, also radically denied the existence of the supernatural, so they denied any belief in miracles, God's intervention into man's world. They de denied the supernatural, and, and that's a very bad point, wouldn't you say? And uh, that meant that they also denied the resurrection of the soul. And that's why they were sad, you see? It'd be pretty sad. <laughs> be pretty sad to not believe in the resurrection. Like the Herodians, to believe that when you die, you die, your body returns to the dust of the earth, and that's all there is. That would be, I can't think of anything more sad. And if I believed like that, I would, I would do what the Sadducees did. I'd live it up and enjoy the here and now. And that's what they did. But that was, a, that was a very bad point. They also denied the existence of any kind of supernatural world populated by angels, or, you know, spirit being, beings, angels, or fallen angels called demons. Now, originally, the Sadducees, just like the Zealots, also developed during the intertestamental period. Um, they originally were completely a political party had nothing to do with religion originally. They only became religious or theological later on in their effort to defend themselves against the attacks of the Pharisees. The Pharisees kept attacking them, and so finally, you know, they started studying their, their first five books of the Bible, and, and they pretended to become religious just so they could counteract all these Pharisaic attacks. But... Um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Well, at first, they gave little concern to the struggle that was going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. They kind of originally stayed out of that struggle. But when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, you know, when he claimed to be the king, the coming king, then that's when the Sadducees entered into the picture. They intervened because their concern, they, they were concerned that 
the emperor of Rome, Tiberius Caesar, would hear about this growing belief among the Jewish people that their king had come. And what would his reaction to that news be, most likely? He wouldn't like the competition. You can guarantee you guarantee that. So he would probably send Roman forces, you know, in large numbers to Israel to crush the Jewish people who were looking to another king other than him. And then what would happen to the Sadducees? They would, they would lose their influence and they would lose their wealth and they would lose their power, which they had struggled so hard to get. See, they were compromisers. They were, they were what we call brown nosers. <laughs> they um, collaborated with the, um, the powers to be, at, that were in existence so that they could gain wealth and, and power from them. So it became very important for them to also plot with the Pharisees on a way to destroy Jesus Christ. Denied an afterlife lived only for the here and now. And as I said earlier, that's exactly what you and I would probably do if we denied an afterlife. They believed in getting all of the gusto out of this life that you could possibly get. And they actually taught that God's reward for external obedience to the law, the Mosaic law, which they did say they believed in, you know, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic law, they said that God's reward for obeying the law was wealth. And so because they had so much wealth, and we'll talk about where they got some of their wealth, because they had so much wealth, they would go around and they would teach the people that the reason they had so much wealth is because God was blessing them. God blessed them for their obedience, their external obedience to his laws. So their teaching was in direct opposition to the Pharisaic position, which taught that rewards for obedience to God's law were not so much to be expected in this life as in the next life. And that's more in line with what we teach. Now, yes, if we obey, we'll experience blessings in this life as well. But the bulk of our blessings for obedience come when? In the next life up in heaven. Now, both the Sadducees and Pharisees, we could say, were, were wrong. Both of them were wrong because both sects place their hope for their rewards. You know, whether they place their hopes in this world, in this life, or in the next life, both of them were wrong and because they were placing their hope in their own works, in their own self-efforts. Neither group had any real concern for inner spiritual life or, or even for the, the welfare of their fellow man. They were really callous when it came to other people. They were so apathetic. And should religious leaders be that way toward their people? No, a shepherd is to love his sheep and even be willing to lay down his life for his sheep, but they, they sure wouldn't do that. It was the leaven or the sin of the Sadducees and the Pharisees about which Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 16, 6. And that leaven, we could say, is uh, described as self-serving, self-righteous, hypocritical, and dead externalism with no inner reality. That's what the Lord Jesus was constantly trying to point out to his disciples and his followers throughout his ministry. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, they do everything externally, but inside they're like whited sepulchers, a sepulchers full of dead men's bones, right? They're just inwardly dead. Everything is an outward show. And we, do we have this brand of people in Christendom today? Absolutely probably in much greater numbers than they had back then. We have Sadducean-type people who live for the here and now. They pretend to be a little religious, but 
they really um, are just gathering all that they can during this life because they really have no hope for another life. And then we have uh, Pharisaic type people who um, lorded over the people. They like the preeminence. They like the um, reverence that they get from their congregations. And, but there's no inner reality. Everything is an, a show, a pious outward show. We have many people like that. We have, we have, all, we have all of these groups, you know. We have zealots and et cetera. Have people that hide their light under a bushel, like the Essenes. Anyway, all you have to do is look around, and you can kind of categorize people today in these different various groups. All right, the Sadducees were definitely smaller in number than the Pharisees. However, because they were extremely wealthy and because they descended from priestly origins, and they did, okay, the Sadducees, remember I said they came, they got their name from that priest named Zadok. The Sadducees were from a priestly lineage, whereas the Pharisees were not. And we'll discuss where the Pharisees came from in a little while. But they did descend from priestly origins. They were very wealthy. And even though, therefore, their number was smaller than the Pharisees, yet they had pretty much a balanced influence in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council over Israel. The Sadducees were particularly influential at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because the two co-reigning high priests, remember they're only supposed to have one high priest, but at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ there were two. We explained why there were two. Annas and Caiaphas were both what? They were both Sadducees. And so that kind of gave the, the, um, the weight in the Sanhedrin over a little heavier to the Sadducees. Even though they were less in number, they had more wealth, and they had the two high priests. So um, at the time of Christ, the Sadducees were more in power. It was the Sadducees, by the way, under the leadership of this high priest, the one named Annas, the older one, <coughs> the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who controlled and profited from the temple booth business. Remember, one of the first things Jesus does in his public ministry is he marches into the temple with a self-made whip, and he chases out the money changers and the sacrificial animal sellers who had turned the Lord's house into a den of thieves. Well, all of that was, um, all that extortionism was, was going on by the, the Sadducees under the leadership of Annas. And Caiaphas was involved as well. So how were they, get, you know, they're running around telling the people that their wealth was because God was blessing them. But where was their wealth really coming from? The people themselves. Yeah, they were, they were um, ripping off the people. Terrible. So they were not very happy with Jesus, especially after he did this little thing in the temple because he was, he was destroying their lucrative business. He was damaging that. And the people knew they were getting ripped off, so they, they were upset about this. And they were, they, that's why they were, originally Jesus was pretty popular with the people great wealth and because of their extortionism and their affiliation with both the Herodians, the Jews who supported the Herods, and with the Romans, the Sadducees were much less liked by the common people than were the Pharisees. Now the common people weren't too crazy about the Pharisees, <laughs> but they liked even less the Sadducees because the Sadducees had no problem at all you know, with the rubbing shoulders with their enemies, the Romans and the Herods and with the Herodians. 
And so they really didn't like this, the Sadducees. They did care more for the Pharisees because the Pharisees were more religious and the Pharisees were more patriotic. They were very patriotic toward Israel and toward Judaism. Um, now, the, the Pharisees were strict separatists, whereas the Sadducees, as I said, were compromisers and collaborators. The Pharisees, you know, we'll talk about them in a minute, they were so strict in their separatism that they would have absolutely nothing to do with the Romans or even with any Gentiles. But the Sadducees had no problem with doing um, whatever it took to get more power and to get more influence and wealth. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had Sanhedrin members who were also priests and scribes. So in other words... If you can understand this, there were Sadducean priests and there were Pharisaic priests. Just like think of two parties, all right, like Democrats and Republicans. All right, so there were Pharisaic priests and there were Pharisaic scribes, just as there were Sadducean priests and Sadducean scribes. The, the only time, the only time that the two major parties of Jewish leadership the Pharisees and the Sadducees ever really joined together in harmony because they were opposite poles. <laughs> the only time they ever came together in harmony was when they mutually plotted on how they might destroy Jesus Christ. Because as much as they hated each other, who did they hate more? Jesus. After the Lord's resurrection from the dead, and after hearing the many, many testimonies of people who had actually seen him in his resurrected glory, the Pharisees became less hostile to his followers, to the Christians. And this was due to the fact that the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the soul, right? So... They weren't quite so hostile after Jesus resurrected from the dead because that really supported their own teaching. And, um, and some of the, some of the um, Pharisees actually got saved. We don't know. We won't know till we get to heaven, but we know of several that did. I'll get to them in a minute. However, after the resurrection of Jesus, the Sadducees intensified their hatred um, and persecution of the Christians because, again, the res if the resurrection of Jesus was true... That blew their whole teaching right out of the water. So they intensified their persecution of the, um, of the Christians, those who followed Jesus. Actually, it was the Sadducean-dominated Sanhedrin which hired Saul of Tarsus to go to Damascus to persecute and even, you know, arrest and persecute and even kill the Christians up there. That was the Sadducean dominated Sanhedrin, <laughs> which hired Saul. Of course, he didn't make it um, before having an experience with the, the living, res resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and he became Paul. And, you know, it's interesting because Paul was hired by the Sadducees to do this, but what was Paul, Saul, originally? He was a Pharisee. Yes, he was a Pharisee originally. But, of course, once he had his uh, Damascus experience, with Christ, he put all that Pharisaic business behind him, and he just he wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He became a born-again Christian, praise the Lord. Well, um, there also it was the Sadducean-controlled Sanhedrin, which had James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the James who wrote our little epistle of James, put to death. 
That was the, San the Sadducean controlled Sanhedrin which did that. Now the sect of the Sadducees disappeared totally, again, just like the other ones from the world scene, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay, let's move on and look at the Pharisees. Now these are the ones you hear the most about. It's not really certain exactly how this religious sect came into being, although it's suspected that they developed from a group of Jews known as the Hasidim, which means the pious ones. And you know that there are various sects of Jewish people yet today. You have your Reformed Jews, you have your Orthodox Jews, you have various different groups of Jews. One of those groups is called the Hasidic Jews. So these are, you know, the ones who still carry on from the Hasidim. The Hasidic Jews stand out. If you go to inner city New York or someplace where you have a big Jewish community, if you go to Israel, the, you will be able to spot the Hasidic Jews in a heartbeat because they are the ones that wear, even in the middle of the hottest part of summer, they wear these big wool fur hats and um, warm clothes. You wonder, aren't they just perspiring like crazy under all their, those warm clothes? And they have the, the men have those long sideburns. You've seen them? How many of you have ever seen them? So you know that they are Hasidic Jews. And they believe that this is where the Pharisees developed from the Hasidim. The Hasidim, again, arose during the time of Judas Maccabee. And they were actually, the Hasidim, were, that group of Jews were the strongest supporters of, Jewish, of um, Judas Maccabee against the Greeks. You know, the revolt, the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks in 165 B.C. Now, the word Pharisee means separated one. Pharisees separated themselves from having any contact at all with Gentiles. Neither would they have, and of course we see this as we go through our study of the life of Christ, they would have nothing to do with tax collectors such as Matthew, Levi. Used to be, Matthew used to be Levi, a tax collector. They would have had nothing to do with him. They would have had nothing to do with little Zacchaeus because he was also a tax collector. We know that they would have nothing to do with the prostitutes and, and those who they considered to be base sinners. They would have nothing to do with them. Actually, we find that they even really looked down their noses at the common Jewish people. Whenever they would be in the marketplace or in any group of where a lot of people were around, the first thing they would do when they got back to their own homes would be go through this um, meticulous purifying ceremony where they would cleanse themselves from head to toe in case somebody had accidentally bumped up against them and contaminated them. I mean, you talk about being obnoxious. <laughs> they were, I'm sure they didn't go around shaking hands, that's for sure. So they really even looked down on the, um, the common Jewish people. Now, admission into their sect was very difficult, very strict. As I said, they did not come from priestly lineage, so you weren't automatically a Pharisee, Pharisee <laughs> just because your father was a Pharisee. You had to, it's kind of like being, being initiated into a fraternity. You had to go through um, this very, well, what do they call it, rush or something. You had to, for one whole year, you had to prove that you could follow flawlessly every single one of their numerous and detailed rituals and laws. I don't know how anybody ever made it to be a Pharisee, because when we get into this um, later on next year, you will find out how many ridiculous laws and you know, man-made rules and regulations they had 
absolutely ridiculous. You couldn't go so many feet, you know, on the Sabbath. And uh, of course, they always found little loopholes for getting around some of these things. But you couldn't ever pull a gray hair because on a Sabbath because that was considered work and all kinds of crazy, crazy things. Um, so the Pharisees formed a self-righteous, holy community community within the regular Jewish community. They were what we would call legalistic isolationists. They had no love or respect for anybody who was outside of their own little group, you know, their own little sect. They were very small-minded. They believed very strongly. Now, this is good. They did have some very good points. This is a good one. They did believe very strongly in the sovereignty of God. So that was right, and that was good. They believed um, strongly in divine destiny. They also rightly believed in the resurrection, and they believed in angels, and they believed in demons, and they believed in the supernatural, and all those things are right on, aren't they? They're good, they're right. But they also, and this is bad, they also believed that they alone were true Israel, and that's not true. They were not true Israel. They would, I mean, they must be so shocked when they found out the truth, that true Israel was the common people like Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zacchaeus. They were not true Israel. But they thought they were because they were the super pious, you know. They were the super spiritual men who, because of their strict adherence to all the laws and all the traditions and et cetera, et cetera, they thought if anybody was going to reap some kind of great reward in heaven, it would be them. And so they thought they were hot to trot. Remember the Pharisee in the temple praying with the publican next to him, and the Pharisee was so obnoxious and so self-righteous, saying, I thank thee that I am not like other men, brother. Their single loyalty was, they would have said their single loyalty was to God, but their single loyalty was really to themselves and to their man-made traditions and to their influence, their prestige over the people. They did love to get the applause and the praise of man. Even though they didn't care about the common man, they sure did like to get his, his, um, his praise. They loved the attention that they received, and they would wear these costumes um, out in public, well, they were always wearing costumes. You'll see in every picture I show you, but they would wear bells on the bottom of their robes. And yesterday I had earrings like Terry has on that were little bells, and during the whole tape, though, you could hear my bells ringing. So that's why I'm retaping it, because those bells were driving me crazy. <laughs> but anyway, they had bells on the bottom of their, their robes so that the people would know when they were coming. I put a little bell on my dog so I know wherever he is. But that's how, So that way the people would, you know, part and let them through, and they could all bow to them and say, hello, your reverence, et cetera, et cetera. They loved that. They ate it up. That's what they thrived on. They also loved getting the best seats in the synagogue. They had the reserved seats right up front for them. You know, They, lo- they loved the preeminence too much. Um, they were really, as the Lord Jesus himself often pointed out over and over again, You know, the harshest words he ever has to speak are against the scribes and the Pharisees. He pointed out that they were the epitome of religious emptiness and hypocrisy. However, theologically, they were much more in line with true Christian doctrine than any of these other sects, other than probably the Essenes. They were certainly much more in line doctrinally than the Sadducees. The Pharisees were 
the conservatives of that day. They were the fundamentalists. They believed in the inspiration of the scriptures. And as I said, that's good. It's just too bad that their religious orthodoxy was so spiritually barren. You know, if they had really had a heart knowledge of everything that they had in their head, it would have been fine and dandy. It would have been good. <clears throat> they had all the head knowledge, but it wasn't real inside. And, of course, we know it does no good to have all the knowledge up in our heads if we don't take it down 18 inches and internalize it into our hearts where we receive. Of course, they really didn't know God. They professed that they knew God, but they didn't know God. And how do we know they didn't really know God? Because... Right. They didn't recognize God in his son, Jesus Christ. So everything, now I'm speaking generally when I talk about the Pharisees in general. Now there were some exceptions. There were some righteous Pharisees. But in general, they did everything for show and they did everything for man's praise. In their favor, again, it must be said that they did maintain the messianic hope. They did look forward to the Messiah coming. And because they kept up the messianic hope, looking for the coming of the Messiah, this prepared the people for accepting the Messiah when he did come. Even though they rejected him, they kept up the messianic hope, whereas all the other groups really put that hope behind them. Ah, you don't believe in that anymore, you know. Where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming. And so that <clears throat> they gave up that, but the Pharisees didn't. Now, the attitude of the Pharisees to Jesus Christ at first was cautious. You know, when he first begins his public ministry, um, and he goes in and he cleanses the temple, that didn't get the Pharisees too upset because that was not their lucrative business that was going on in there. That was the Sadducees. All right, so at first they were cautious. They didn't criticize him a whole lot. They seem to maybe be hoping that he might unite with them. I mean, if this really was the Messiah, surely if he was going to unite with anybody, it would be them. They were the religious elite. He wouldn't align himself with the common people, would he? He'd come to them and he'd be part of their group. So that's what they were anticipating originally. However, as time went on and it became very apparent that he disregarded their interpretations of the law, and especially when it came to the law of the Sabbath, then um, they, gave, they get, became more and more antagonistic toward him. And as he gained greater popularity with the people, this also caused the Pharisees to grow progressively more opposed to him because they didn't want him getting all the attention and preeminence when they liked it and they wanted it. In the end, of course, you know, they were willing to even join forces with the Sadducees, who they absolutely detested, in order to eliminate Jesus. Because as much as they hated the Sadducees, they hated Jesus of Nazareth even more. You know, mainly because he had publicly shamed them on so many occasions, pointed the finger at them and called them hypocrites, pointed the finger at them and... Um, and, and showed their ignorance, their true ignorance of scripture. And that infuriated them, that ashamed them in front of the people, and they hated him, and they wanted to do away with him. So they joined forces with the, the Sadducees to do so. All right, the Bible tells us the names of at least two Pharisees. And we've already mentioned one of them. His name was Saul. Because when he became Paul, he was no longer a Pharisee. Saul was a Pharisee. And then who is another Pharisee that we're told about, right? Nicodemus. I actually had the wrong picture. There's Nicodemus. And, um, of course, both of them 
became true believers. After the resurrection of Jesus, there were probably other Pharisees who um, came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They were, their beliefs, their teaching actually gave them a much greater advantage to become true believers than did the Sadducees. So I guess one day in heaven, we'll probably find a number of men who were Pharisees and came to true belief in Jesus Christ, whereas I doubt we'll find too many Sadducees up there. And the ones who we do meet up there won't be sad, you see, anymore. They'll be happy, happy you sees. <laughs> oh boy. All right, the scribes. Happy you sees? No, glad you sees. That's what I should call them. Glad you sees. They'll be glad you sees. <laughs> the, the scribes were the uh, professional students of the law. They spent their whole life as students. They were a class of scholars who devoted themselves exclusively, entirely, to the study of the Old Testament scriptures. Of course, they went with all the Old Testament scriptures, unless they were Sadducean scribes, and then they only studied the Pentateuch. But they were zealous defenders of, of the law, and they were the teachers of the people. They were also, remember when we discussed the time when Jesus was 12 years old and his parents found him in the temple with the doctors of the law. That's the scribes. That's another term for the scribes, the doctors of the law. They weren't medical doctors. They were Ph.D. kind of doctors. Um, and they're also called lawyers in the scripture. They were held in high esteem by the common Jewish people because they're the ones who knew the law. And they're the ones who, who on occasion, like at the time of the Passover, would allow the common people to come onto the portico of the temple and they would have these little question and answer sessions where they would teach the people. However, as we'll talk about in a minute, they didn't want to tell the people too much. But generally, they belonged to the Pharisaic sect. Most of the scribes were Pharisaic. That's why when you hear Jesus talk, you usually hear him say, scribes and Pharisees. You don't hear scribes and Sadducees. So most of the scribes were Pharisaic in their teaching, in their approach. They were reproached by Jesus for imposing very strict religious laws on others while ignoring many of those laws themselves. They were, the scribes and Pharisees were very good at making the common people obey all their little man-made rules and regulations while they would find little loopholes and how they could get out of obeying a lot of those laws. Jesus also accused them of keeping their scriptural learning a secret. Now they did have those occasional question and answer sessions, but overall they would keep what they knew to themselves, which he said cut the people off from the kingdom of God. Yet at the same time, they made no use of their knowledge for themselves, you know, even for themselves. It kind of reminds me of um, what went on in, in church history. You know, we find out in church history that many times the Bible was actually kept from the people. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the common people did not have access to the Bible. And that, you see, gave the, the clergy more honor and respect. And the people came to actually, you know, look to them for everything because they're the only ones that had the word of God. And they distorted the word of God. And that's what was going on here. 
they had the Word of God and they studied it their whole lifetime, but they didn't really want the people to know too much about it because then the people wouldn't look up to them as much as they did. And Jesus, you know, accused them. He said, you're cutting people off from the kingdom of heaven, which is really, really bad. And, you know, it's one thing to cut yourself off from the kingdom of heaven, but it's even worse to keep other people out of the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what they were doing. And he, he told them point blank that that's what they were doing. They so enjoyed their esteemed position in society that they purposely withheld Bible knowledge from the people. And that is a terrible, that is a crime. That is a crime. All right. And I think there's, a, you know, there are levels of hell. And I think that's probably one of the lowest levels in hell as those who know, knew the truth and did not share it with others and even didn't use it for their own benefit. What a sad situation. All right, he, took, he also accused the scribes and the Pharisees of taking great pride in their attire, which, of course, they did. They loved their little costumes, and they dressed differently so that the people would know who they were. And they loved the greetings. They loved the salutations that they received from the people just as much as they loved the special seats of honor that they got when they went to the synagogue or went to they, when they went to feasts and ceremonies and all that. They just loved the praise of men. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the scribes. Let's move to the last group, the Essenes, under the religious section there, and then we'll quickly look at the Sanhedrin. The Essenes were a sect of Jews who lived mostly in isolated communities west of the Dead Sea, where I already said it's very, very hot. It's a desert area. It's uh, the lowest place on the face of the earth. And there they lived in a monastic type of separated lifestyle. They were wise enough, this group of men were wise enough to know that the temple worship, everything that was going on inside of the temple, had become very corrupt. They knew about Annas' bazaar and the corruption, and um, they knew about the, the externalism of the religious leaders, and they saw the hypocrisy of everything that was going on. But their only answer to all of that ungodliness was to separate themselves from it. And so what they did is they went out to the caves around the Dead Sea, and they lived out there, um, especially in a, like a community called Qumran, <clears throat> and they, um, they de dedicated themselves to copying the word of God, which is good. But they never set foot in the temple again. They, just, they didn't go to the temple. They didn't worship in the temple. They didn't take their animal sacrifices to the temple. The only thing that they did was they would loyally send in their temple tributary money. At the time of the Lord Jesus, there were some 4,000 Essenes, and most of them were unmarried, so they were very similar to monks. They lived unmarried lives, and they dedicated themselves to God and God's word. However, from time to time, they did adopt male children from willing Jewish families, and they would raise those children collectively to be um, Essenes when they grew up. One of their ancient communities, as I said, is now the famous um, community known as Qumran, which is where they found what? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, an Arabic shepherd boy discovered them supposedly by accident, although we know nothing is by accident, back in 1947. The Essenes spent much of their time meticulously copying the scriptures which they rightfully believed to be the divinely inspired revelation of God, right down to the jot and tittle. So they, I mean, they, their eyes must have given way. They just spent their whole lives copying every book of the Old Testament. And we are we're very thankful for what they did. 
because um, it is a very wonderful benefit to Christians. The sad thing about Essenes, however, is that they had very little influence on their community. They had very little influence upon their society. <clears throat> I mean, they knew that the, the things that were going on in Judaism and at the temple were wrong and that they were ungodly, but their answer to it was just to totally separate themselves. And that's the danger that we have in, you know, in our lives, is that we, we seclude ourselves and separate ourselves so that we don't even have any friends who aren't Christians. <laughs> they did that. They just went out to those caves and lived in the hot desert, and um, they, they, they didn't have the influence of salt and light upon this world. And Jesus spoke about this. He said, we are to be the salt of the earth. We're to be the light of the world. We're not to hide our light under a bushel. And that's what's wrong with a monastic type of lifestyle. They had no influence on others. And if they had intermingled in society, they could have had more of an impact. They could have shared, because they knew the truth. They were right on spiritually. They understood God's word. I believe many, many, many of them were truly born again. You know, we will see them in heaven. I don't know if they got word about Jesus Christ, etc., but they did believe in the coming of the Messiah. And um, they had everything right except that they separated themselves from the world. Now, we are not to be of the world, but we are in the world, and we are to have an influence on this world. That's why we don't keep quiet our wonderful message. And the sad thing is that they're not found mentioned anywhere in the Scripture. We know about them, but never once are they mentioned in the scripture. And that is really sad. Okay, the Jewish Sanhedrin will close with this. I don't know if you can see that little diagram up there, but this is the third main division of Jewish leadership. It was the judicial group, and it was made up of 70 men plus the high priest, which would make a total of 71. In this weird case at the time of Jesus, there was, I guess, 72 because there were two high priests. Um, it was the highest Jewish tribunal. It cons well, I already said that consisted. The, all right, the 70 men consisted of scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, um, leading priests, prominent lawyers, and those kind of people. Now, the word Sanhedrin comes from two words, two Hebrew words, which means seated together. Because they came together kind of like our Senate, and they sat together in order to make their judgments. Its influence was very powerful over Israel, and the internal government of the country, particularly the area of Judea, was practically in its hands. Even under the Romans, it was Judea and Israel was under its hands. The members of the Sanhedrin had the final authority, you see, on all religious matters. Anything that had to do with their religion, Romans just said the Sanhedrin has final authority because the Romans really didn't care about the religion of the Jews. They thought it was foolishness, and so they didn't want to even be bothered with it, so they turned it all over to the Sanhedrin, this high council. They, um, the members sat in a semicircle. I don't know if you can see that. No, you probably can't, but maybe you can make out that circle. The members, the 70 men, sat in a semicircle there with the president and the high priest in the center, up here in the center. 35 members would be on one side of that circle and 35 members would be on the other. And then there were rows of seats behind the circle where students, special students, were, were allowed to come in and observe the proceedings that were going on. Also, there were two on each end of the semicircles there were um, 
clerks of court who sat and, and record, they were like secretaries, they recorded everything that was said and, and uh, spoken. All right. They had their own police force, even. The Sanhedrin had their own police force known as the Temple Soldiers or Temple, temple Police, I think is what I was looking for, Temple Police. And they could even send them out to uh, arrest for a civil or a criminal charge. And remember, they sent the temple police out to actually arrest Jesus. So the, the temple police belonged to the Sanhedrin. They could also rule on a number of punishments other than just the, the religious punishments. They could also rule on some criminal, secular punishments, including the 39 lashes for serious wrongdoing. Remember, Paul received 39 lashes on two different occasions, I think it was. Only the death penalty fell outside the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. The death penalty for anyone, for any cause, required a Roman administrator. And that's a very interesting detail for us as Christians because if the Sanhedrin had been able to announce the death penalty for Jesus Christ, how would Jesus have been put to death? He would have been stoned to death. That was their form of putting a person to death, was stoning them. So if the Sanhedrin had had the power to um, give the death, death penalty, Jesus Christ would not be our Messiah because he would not have accurately fulfilled the prophecies that tell us he was going to be crucified, that he would be pierced through, that not a bone in his body would be broken, um, that he would be lifted up, on, you know, like on the, the pole that the serpent was on in the desert with Moses, all kinds of different prophecies which predict that he would die with two thieves, that he'd be buried with the rich. I doubt they would have buried him with the rich. But if the Jews had had the final say, Jesus would not have died via the way of crucifixion. And therefore, he, we would not be saved today because he would not be our our Messiah. However, we know that because the Romans had the final jurisdiction over the death penalty, he was crucified because he was not a Roman citizen. They would never crucify a Roman citizen. He was not a Roman citizen, so he was crucified, and therefore he is completely eligible not only to be Israel's Savior and Messiah, but ours as well. That's the 